0: This is Tina again with Good Nurse Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another intriguing episode of healthcare professionals doing both good and bad things. We like to shine a light in the darkness, as I say, about those people who do the just completely inexplicable things in healthcare. But of course, as I always say, the vast majority of healthcare professionals are wonderful, amazing people who will sacrifice themselves to take care of other people. So this is going to be a really interesting episode. First of all, I'd like to welcome my guest host for this week, Nurse Fern, Emma Geyser. Hi, Emma. Hey. Hey. It's so good to have you on the show. I'm really excited. I don't believe that I have had all the time that I've been doing this and all the different people I've had on. I do not think that I've had on a nurse, a remote nurse, a nurse who truly does their job remotely. So that's kind of cool because that's literally what you do is help other nurses get into remote nursing.
1: Pretty much. It's also really exciting. I've never been part of a true crime podcast. So
0: I'm a big fan of true crime podcasts, So I like it. That's kind of why I sort of incorporated that into this podcast just because I wanted to have that element I'm just I just selfishly wanted to be able to talk about that at the same time while I love talking about nursing and healthcare and just getting to bring awareness to a lot of issues that that healthcare professionals deal with kind of wanted that extra interesting element to be able to bring to the show so that's kind of kind of fun so when we get into the after we talk about this In completely unspeakable, I'm excited. Bad (laughs) doctor story. Like, oh my gosh. We're going to feature you as the good nurse, and we're going to talk about what you do to help nurses get into remote nursing. And I think there's a lot of nurses out there who are interested in how exactly you get a job working as a nurse. From home and what are their options? We're going to talk about.
1: that. Awesome, yeah. I kind of fell into it, so I'm excited to share how I guide people. Now.
0: I think that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be like, "Hey, I've kind of kind of liked to do that." And in fact, you're going to be coming to Austin, Texas, as we're recording this. It may be released just before like the day before. The <laughs> I think so, maybe. So it'll. If you're listening to this, if you happen to be listening to this, and you're in Austin, for heaven's sake just drive on over you have time travel and even yeah if, even if you want to watch virtually because we're going to be live streaming it we're going to be recording all of it and putting it on a web- website for people to be able to go back and watch even if you can't be there but in person it's going to be cool it's in an art gallery we're going to have all these people just like you explaining all these different types of things that you can do with your nursing degree other than working just at the bedside which is cool tacos Taco bar <laughs> I
1: mean no I'm really excited yeah. to see everybody but tacos.
0: <laughs> I know there's a taco bar, a cash bar. We're gonna play family feud at some point. It's gonna be It's just gonna be fun. I'm excited.
1: I'm excited to hear what everybody else does away from the bedside as a nurse. Mm-hmm. It's just such a cool thing to talk about because nobody talks about it.
0: I know. So if you guys are hearing this and it's not September 24th yet, <laughs> and you or it is, and you want to jump in on the conversation, you can go to nursecreatorcon.com to get tickets. And you can use the promo code GNBN-20 to get 20% off. Sweet. Come hang out with us. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast, and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to TrustedHealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. So I guess we can get started with this bad doctor story. Uh, my goodness, it is kind of one of my favorite types of stories to do because it's way back in the day. So when I do these stories, I sort of like the fact that there are, could be, It's not possible that there is anyone alive that's connected to the story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I love that. We can sort of just talk freely about it and not have to worry, you know, is somebody going to hear this? And they're going to be like, hey, that's my family member or, you know, so. Well, the
1: Kennedys might come for you on this one.
0: Well, that's true. (laughs) That is true. So this is about Dr. Walter Jackson Freeman. He was a an American neurologist, and he was born November 14th in 1895 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His father was an otolaryngologist and his grandfather was a surgeon. And despite having family members in medicine, he really wasn't thinking he was going to go into medicine. I'm worried about
1: my parallels with nursing right now with this person.
0: Ooh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. You're like, who? This is sounding more and more like me.
1: Oh, no. No, 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 (laughs) no.
0: Yeah. As we get into it, no, the trail goes way off. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) So after he graduated with his bachelor's degree from Yale in 1916, he decided to go ahead and enroll as a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. And after he got his medical degree in 1923, he set sail to Europe to study neurology. So he's off to a good start so far, but he wouldn't be in the bad doctor story if things didn't take a dark turn at some point, and it's about to go way off the rails. So he returned to the United States the following year and secured a position as the director of laboratories at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which was at the time a leading psychiatric institution in Washington, D.C. The hospital was renowned for being one of the nation's largest hospitals for the mentally ill. And it was home to thousands of patients who were suffering from depression, dementia, and psychosis. So at the time, he's 28 years old. And he says he was repulsed at what he saw at this institution. Approximately 5,000 patients called St. Elizabeth's Hospital home.
1: That is a huge mental health hospital.
0: Man, that's a lot of people. And he perceived the lives of the patients there as a tragedy, as he said that they were not going anywhere and would not go anywhere, and they weren't getting any better. They were just sort of stuck in that state.
1: There's some serious foreshadowing here.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, seriously, yes. He thought that he was destined for medical greatness and perhaps influenced from his own hubris and a small bit of compassion for the patients he saw at the hospital. He embarked on a journey to discover... A physical abnormality in the brain responsible for mental illness. Mm. So mm-hmm. we know so well, much Port- more now.
1: It's so uncomfortable listening it is to this. So uncom-
0: <laughs> it is. It's so uncomfortable. You just want to. go, You want to correct at every turn everything I say. I want to go. Of course, now we know. <laughs> yeah. I'm just
1: cringing. I'm like, oh, I know. How do I say it?
0: <laughs> right. Well, in Portugal, there was a neurologist named Egas Iga- Moniz. He compiled a monograph, which is a detailed written study of a single specialized subject, <laughs> of, of a new radical operation that yielded promising results for patients afflicted with mental disorders. Did you
1: say single, like one patient was his study?
0: Mm-hmm. Man, clinical a research specialized leaps subject. and bounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, yeah, radical operation and once a single specialized subject, I'm not sure that those two should go together.
1: I think we have some clinical research nurses out there that are also cringing at this point.
0: They're just like, what? Where's the evidence based practice? Peer reviewed study, anybody? Right. And how did it yield promising results? It's just like, oh, I got lucky and he didn't die, you know? But in 1936, A copy of this study that was done by this Portuguese neurologist found its way into the hands of Dr. Freeman that we're talking about. That's unfortunate. I know. He was intrigued by the details of operating on the brain's frontal lobe. So Emma, for years, I've heard this thing about the frontal lobe and how it takes a long time or it takes longer for the frontal lobe to form in males than it does females. And that it's you're like 25 years old before it really is completely formed. I've just heard all these things. I don't know if they're myths or if they're maybe based in reality, but then they get blown up because you also hear like insurance companies know this because that's why your insurance goes starts going down after you turn 25.
1: You stop making such sketchy choices.
0: Yeah. I think that it's just that highly likely if you're under 25 that you're going to be in an accident and insurance companies definitely know that. They're really good statisticians. (laughs) So that's what I think. But he, this surgeon is convinced that this procedure could not only offer hope to thousands of mental patients, but also could advance his career, which unfortunately I think Happens all too often in the medical field where someone's more interested in advancing their career or their reputation, getting published, getting their name out there. And so they're you know, willing to kind of fudge numbers.
1: Yeah, it's hard because to make great innovations, you have to advance your career so that people find you. But doing it in the wrong way creates great harm.
0: Well, he recruited a, another doctor by the name of James Watts. He was a young neurosurgeon, and he got him to assist him with his research. Watts assisted Freeman in performing the first prefrontal lobotomy in the United States. And the patient reportedly suffered from anxiety, insomnia, and depression.
1: Can you imagine having major brain surgery because of that now? I mean, no. what nurse isn't taking an antidepressant and mm-hmm. it's,
0: Yes, there there are a lot of chemical imbalances for lots and lots of people in this day and age, and maybe I would imagine there always have been, and we just didn't understand it and didn't know that.
1: As someone who like openly goes to therapy, I am so glad that this is something we talk about now. Mm.
0: I know, and the thing is that when they just you know when they discovered diabetes and discovered how you know you could use insulin to help people who. Otherwise, we're going to die. This is—it's not something like, "Oh, don't talk about diabetes." That's—you know—you don't want to. It's embarrassing to have diabetes. You know, I don't have diabetes. I'm not weak. You know, like that would be ridiculous. Nobody does that, and yet that's what we do in this country sometimes, and in the world really with mental illness. It's getting so much better, and I'm so thankful for that. But we still struggle with it. But back in this day, I—it was definitely stigmatized for sure. And I think people were desperate because there weren't all the medications that we have today to help. And I guess people were just so desperate to have some relief from dealing with all of those symptoms. So what he did is he decided that what Moniz had said in his study needed to be taken a little bit further. He insisted that the patient's frontal lobe be severed completely from the thalamus, which is the brain's seat of human emotion. That's
1: a wee bit he radical.
0: Oh man, he believed that the frontal lobe was the source of all mental illness. So, when the patient, this particular patient, awoke after several hours and appeared to be cured from their afflictions, he was encouraged and decided, hey, I'll just go do this to anybody that needs it and began to perform dozens of prefrontal lobotomies despite their degrees of varying success. So, As you can imagine, they were not all successful. There were lots of um, unbelievable, tragic atrocities that happened due to this procedure being performed on people. But that was okay with him. He just felt like, well, I've got to keep forging ahead and I'm sure I will be able to perfect this. And it didn't matter. It seemed to matter to him that it was on actual human beings who were desperate for help, which is really sad. I am so advantage.
1: glad we have standards now and review mm-hmm. boards, oversight for
0: all of this. You know, it's encouraging to think of what we have now, but so just horrible to think about what people went through back then and how desperate they must have been to resort to this. To, I mean, think about where you have to be in your life to agree to allow someone to do this procedure to say, I'm going to remove part of your brain and this is going to help you. And you would agree to do this. You, are, you would have to be so incredibly desperate. And I know there's a lot of people listening to this who are probably thinking, I could kind of understand that because I've been there where it's, I've been, you know, so at such a point, you know, at such a low point that I would literally do anything for relief. And so that, it makes me, it just makes me so sad to think of all those people going through that. Well, within a year, he adapted his procedure and created this, what he called ice pick lobotomy. I mean, the imagery that that dredges up is just absolutely terrifying. I think of all of the horror films that have these mad scientists, doctors, you know, with the ice pick performing these procedures. I never knew that was based in actual reality, that sort of like, who would think that would be based on a true story?
1: So I only knew this, and I know probably a lot of nurses that are listening have a lot of experience in this, because I don't know why so many of us were psych majors before we came nurse became nurses. So when you sent me the story, I was like, oh my gosh, this is my jam. But I automatically get that visual. And I know people can't see this video, but like lifting the eyelid to jam above your eyeball. And then like the descriptions are online or like, they just swirled the ice pick around until they got results. Like what? <laughs> like how?
0: Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Just basically making it like a little soup up there in that area. This, oh my goodness. I guess, you know, just kind of like, okay, we're taking out a little part, taking out another part. And then maybe at some point the patient goes, I think I feel better. I mean, are they awake during this? Are they ba- I don't know. It's just
1: So I was reading about was it Rosemary Kennedy? Was mm-hmm. it about how they kept her awake and they had her reciting a prayer, I believe. And when she stopped talking, they knew they were good. Oh. Like and then she was mm. institutionalized for the rest of her life.
0: That after is that. so horrible. Oh my goodness. That is so sad. That's just so sad. Well, He believed that, I mean, listen to this, this is, it's, I understand this was a long time ago, so we do have to realize that. But at the same time, to think that he thought that anyone, any medical, any doctor, even a hospital psychiatrist could be taught to perform this new operation in just one afternoon.
1: Makes you think about see one, do one, teach one a little bit differently.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know that there are people, okay this is a Tina tangent, but there, there are nurses out there who will, they don't want to ask for help. They don't want to admit that they don't know how to do something or don't know something. And so they will just be, they need to do something like, I don't know, put in an NG tube or whatever, something. And they don't want to admit that they haven't done it before. They won't ask for help, so they just go to doing it themselves, and they just figure, "I'll figure it out." I've dealt with nurses like this before. You know, you kind of come along behind behind someone, and something is just set up all wrong, like completely backwards from the way it should be, upside down. Like, so, so, it's just way off, and you're just like, "What? What? <laughs> hmm. Wonder why this is like this." And then you ask them, like, "Hey." This is not how this goes. Did you realize that this was set up? Oh, I had never done that before. I didn't know. And I'm the kind of nurse that I will correct you because I believe that it's what's safest for the patient. For me to correct you and, and say, "Hey, this is not actually how this works." I want you to do the same thing for me when I make a dumb mistake. I want you to. I want to know so that I can fix it.
1: Well, and it's so much better to have like that one-on-one than to find out later that somebody just went and blabbed about you in the break room. Without actually teaching you.
0: That is never appropriate. Never, never appropriate. Always go directly to the person in private in a way that you can talk it through, help them understand. The way that I try to correct someone is by telling them at a time that I did something stupid. And so I feel like it just sort of disarms them. And so I'm like, look, one time I did such and such and such such. So don't feel bad about this. But I just saw where you had connected this wrong and, you know, it was going away from the patient instead it to the patient or something, whatever. Um, and this is the way it really goes and here's what could happen if you have it hooked up wrong. So in the future, this is the way this goes. CBD Stat. They're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples and I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist. And it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for
1: her scoliosis. And it really does help.
0: That's amazing. And of course, their products are 100% THC free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1,000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. That's cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse, be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there. So they'll know that we sent you there. I find it so sad that nurses don't feel that they don't feel comfortable going to other nurses and saying, I don't care how long you've been a nurse. You can't have seen everything. Why are we so afraid of each other that we can't go to, you know, a colleague and say, I've never done this before. Could you show me? Or actually I've done it five times. And for some reason, I, every time I I do it, It's not sinking in. Like, whatever it is, just say it. Just own it. Ask for help. Think about you are dealing with a person, a human being, you know, a a patient's life is in your hands there. And you may think it's not a big deal, but it could be a very big deal. I think it's
1: really important to have those because I like internally also I'm thinking about all those times where I'm like, there are those people you don't go to. So it is really important to know the people that have your back at work that you can rely on and ask questions and the other resources you can go to. Because unfortunately, in nursing, you can't just go to anybody. And I'm hopeful in the future that we are better colleagues to each other. But at times, it, it is really good to know who you can ask.
0: And in this day and age, we have lots of resources out there. We have YouTube we can consult. And when I say YouTube, I'm not talking about just any random person. I'm talking about you can go to YouTube usually and find like the manufacturer video that will demonstrate how to do things. I literally I do. I've done that several times. Like I had a Plurix drain one time and I was like, I've never had one of these before. And I have to hook this bulb looking thing up to (laughs) and try to drain this chest tube. And I don't know how and no one on the floor knew how to do it. And so I literally looked it up, the actual manufacturer video, stepping you through the whole process, like one of those like super boring things, <laughs> you know, like I hand hygiene before uh, assembling your, you know, <laughs> and I watched the whole thing, but I knew exactly how to do it. I was like, oh, this is easy. This is not a big deal. It's that visual. I needed to see it first and then I feel really confident and then I want to do another one because I'm like, oh, I can do that now. I want to do it. And I love to teach. So yeah, that's my jam too. I love to to be the person that's like, hey, I know how to do that. I can show you.
1: Yeah, the last hospital I worked at actually went through like a security update and blocked YouTube from their system. And there was an entire, like everybody came out of the woodwork to share why it needed, like they needed to reverse that so that you could do things like go watch manufacturer videos. And they actually reversed their policy on it, which surprised me. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's really cool, though, because it is a huge resource for nurses. If you can't look up, you know, the Lippincott or your hospital policy, for some reason, doesn't have it in there. I worked at a hospital one time where it was literally impossible. Oh, yeah. If you don't have a good online
1: library that has like up to date Lippincott, all that, like you're looking at you're just trying to do what's best and find the right resource.
0: That's exactly right. So I say all that, like I told you guys, I was going on a teeny tangent. I do that every now and then where I'm just like, oh no, this popped up in my head. I feel like I need to say it. But just in talk, you know, thinking about, you know, what he's doing, it feels like he's just kind of going around doing whatever to people, experimenting basically on these people. I think it...
1: Would feel different for me knowing this story if it didn't also include the element of like the boy whose mom brought him in for a lobotomy who was just acting up and refusing to go to bed. Like, okay,
0: tell me about this because I don't even know this. I don't think it's even, I don't remember
1: his name, but it was like an adolescent and the mom brought him for a lobotomy because he was refusing, he was talking back like normal things for a younger child to do. And they did a lobotomy on him to make him more compliant. And so if that was, if it was more purely like he was altruistic and really thought he was helping people, I would probably feel much different about this, knowing it from the light of like, we have advanced so far. So we know that is absolutely terrible now, but it definitely puts into light the difference between like the rise of chemotherapy and that experimentation
0: versus this. How disgusting. I mean, it's, Imagine, you know, being that mother who is just—I'm sure, maybe for some reason, thinks that that she, her—I mean, maybe the tantrums were really bad, or and it was getting harder and harder to deal with. But to go so far as to make your son forever dis—you know—disabled—that's just—it's horrifying. It is horrifying. Well. He got to where he is going on these expeditions, these headhunting expeditions, as he called them, and doing, performing these procedures in hotel rooms. It just kind of got out of control. And his partner, Dr. Watts, actually parted ways with him. He performed his last lobotomy in – Dr. Freeman p- performed his last lobotomy in February of 1967 when a patient he operated on died from a brain hemorrhage. So that wasn't that long ago. uh -uh. 1967. That is so recent. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It does. It feels, it feels recent. Like, wait, 1967. That's, well, even
1: looking at like different famous people who've had lobotomies, Mm -hmm. like several didn't die until like the last, like mid. Two thousand seven, two thousand nine,
0: like you know, there is electroshock therapy that they perform on the frontal lobe. That's kind of that stimulation to try to jolt. I don't uh, pretend to know people. Please don't email me and tell me how ignorant I am. I know I'm stupid when it comes to this. I really don't understand how it works, but I know that there is there are people out there who get treatment for major depression. I'm not talking about. You know there are different levels of depression, and that is not to minimize. If you just you know have even a mild form of depression, that's a lot to deal with, and it, it you need help for that. But there are some people that that suffer from a very debilitating type of depression where you cannot you can't get out of bed, you can't make yourself do anything. It's and it doesn't matter. It does not matter nothing matters those are the people who were going to him for help and i have talked to people personally who have had the electroshock therapy as a way to to help them with as a therapy for their depression and it and it works it has worked for them so i feel like there's there was some basis in this whole thing something where it was clearly not appropriate to be taking an ice pick and going through someone's eyeball and trying to remove a portion of the brain that clearly.
1: Someone can have like the right idea with Mm -hmm. not good intentions and execution.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think where the problem lies in the brain, they were onto Mm -hmm. something there. And But then trying to go in and just completely remove that part of the brain as if there would be no repercussions whatsoever. Yeah.
1: I'm at a point in life too, where like, you don't get a pass anymore if you started, uh, like if you can say, well, yeah, they were bad, but no, 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 like, you know, no,
0: no, not if you know you're destroying lives Mm -hmm. and you can't justify that. If you know, you're literally just wreaking havoc and leaving a trail of, either dead or completely disabled, debilitated, you know, totally irreversible, to have done irreversible damage to the people that you've done surgery Mm -hmm. on. There's no way you can justify that. Well, his work gained many supporters over the years, but the media felt that his work was reckless and placed many many people's lives and health at risk. And so it's estimated they actually performed over 3,500 Three thousand five hundred lobotomies during his career, and approximately four hundred and ninety of those individuals died as a result of the treatment.
1: That's a huge mortality rate.
0: Yeah, that's an unacceptable. Yeah, mortality that observed
1: rate. over expected is not tracking great right now.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. His attitude and the procedure's alarming fatality rate combined with his lack of interest in describing a scientific basis for the procedure left him with little authority in the medical community. And despite his faults and the barbaric nature of his treatment methods, some experts speculate that his interest in helping those afflicted with mental health issues was genuine. There's the justification. I know. I just, I tend to disagree, even though obviously I'm completely removed and I don't clearly don't know him.
1: Well, we're armchair quarterbacking. So we get to talk a lot of smack right now.
0: I mean, I am. Yeah. But think about what, what he, you know, I just like, what have you done? Look what you're doing. There is, you are trying to advance your own career and make a name for yourself. You want to be known as the person who, you know, the father of curing depression or whatever. And it's that's clearly your goal if you're willing to sacrifice all of these people.
1: I think he missed his ethics course.
0: Mm -hmm. They also acknowledge these experts, I guess, that opine on this subject. (laughs) They acknowledge that he did contribute to the field of neurosurgery during a time when antipsychotic drugs were not widely available for mental disorders. And of course, we know that at the time there wasn't a lot of treatment and I do have a lot of empathy for those people. I have suffered from mental health issues myself. I nowhere near what these people are have suffered from, but I've known intimately, like close have been close friends with people who have had that sort of debilitating mental illness. And I'm just telling you, it is it's so difficult because they're while the rest of the world, you know, they can't, they don't look at you and see an illness. You look totally fine. You can even physically function. Everything seems to work. And so for the, what these people struggle with is I should be able to make myself better. I should be able to just physically do whatever it is I'm supposed to do. It's like they, you know, it's a constant struggle to just against in a fight, you know, against... Hating themselves for not being able to physically overcome it when you wouldn't do that to yourself if you had, you know, type 1 diabetes or, you know, any other kind of illness or ailment that just happens to you that's congenital, that just appears.
1: We definitely have so much work to do with mental health, but I am so glad that we are past the point of people. only having the sketchy ice pick lobotomy as an option.
0: Yeah, me too. Definitely happy to be past this nightmare and it can just live and exist in the horror films and those mad scientist laboratories. Mm -hmm. I
1: was actually going to bring up too. I think it might, I don't know if it was part of Reese's book club, but the Rose Code is a really cool bit, book for, that's World War II. And there's a storyline about mental health and lobotomies being performed in a mental hospital. It is a really good book. Rose Code by Kate Quinn, like strong female World War II era, like r- just an amazing can't put it down book. And one of the story elements is about
0: lobotomies. Ooh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: And lobotomies for control. I don't want to give away too much about the book. I should probably be quiet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. And use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Well, I guess that wraps it up for this bad doctor story. It was quite a tale, huh?
1: (laughs) It's definitely
0: a lesson. Well, we can get started on our Good Nurse segment. And I'm super excited to get to talk to you about this finally because you have a company called Nurse Fern in which you help you use your knowledge and skill that you have to help other nurses get into remote nursing. So just tell everyone about your company and what you do and how you got started.
1: Yeah. So my name's Emma. Every a lot of people think my name is Fern, but my name is Emma and I am the creator of Nurse Fern and it is a company that helps nurses transition from bedside nursing in particular to remote nursing that is a particular area that's difficult is trying to figure out how you can translate your skills from the bedside to get into a different type of position like case management or u r or just anything that you can do from home so that's what we focus on at nurse fern and by we i mean me it's just easier to say we and I was actually looking and I think it's been going, I've been doing this for about three
0: years. Three years. Okay. Have you been working from home for three years or you've been helping other people learn how to work from home?
1: I've been helping other people for about three years. I've actually been working from home since I believe 2018, 2017. It all becomes a blur. Like now that it's further back.
0: If somebody were to just come up to you and say, Hey, I'm a nurse and I heard that you do you work from home and that's something that I would be interested in for ver- whatever reason how do I get started what would you, where would you start with someone like that that's
1: a, I get a lot of messages that are pretty much the same in my DMs that are like hey I'm interested in this but where do I start and it really is a I mean I always recommend just jumping in and reading all the information you can find we do have tons of it available on the nurse fern website But one of the biggest resources that I enjoy individual nurses tapping into is finding nurses at their own hospital that are in positions that can be done from home. Like case management, utilization review, clinical documentation, integrity. If those nurses happen to be on site, talk to them about what their job is. and Because anything that is not direct patient care related, somebody is probably doing it from home.
0: Okay, So if you're in the hospital and maybe look around and say, who is the utilization review nurse? I see that. I see utilization review nurses like documenting in the record. I'll see their name pop up, but I I don't know who they are. I don't know where they are. We
1: usually live in the basement. Yeah. Case managers, patient facing, they tend to be out on the floor. Everybody else who doesn't have a ton of patient interaction, Mm -hmm. we tend to live in hospital basements and at home.
0: (laughs) They don't like to give us
1: windows. (laughs) But yeah, I tend to categorize jobs into an introvert or an extrovert type role. And it has nothing to do with your personality, but I call... Introvert positions, those that don't have a lot of phone time and patient contact, and then extrovert being the ones that do have heavy phone time and you're directly helping patients. So for like the introverted side, you are looking at data abstraction, you are CDI, HEDIS. And then for like the extrovert, that's gonna be the case management, the telephonic triage, any sort of care coordination, health coaching.
0: So if somebody is has been working at the bedside for years and that's what they that's what they do. They've worked Med Surg, maybe ICU, they've kind of been all over. And so they're very comfortable, maybe they've worked at a f- few different hospitals, so they've had experience with Cerner and Epic and maybe a few different of the big, Mar, you know, EMRs, but they don't have any experience with case management or utilization reviews, but they have the clinical side. Do you think that they could just go apply for a job online that they find like, "Oh, here's a job that says it's remote?" Do you think it's likely they would get hired or do you think they have to find some like side doorway into a position like that?
1: So no side doorways unless you are interested in getting experience first. And that's when transitioning to an onsite role at your hospital can be very helpful because then you're going into remote applications with that specific experience. But as far as applying to remote jobs, it really it can be disheartening because it all of a sudden you're thrust into corporate America instead of applying for a bedside position where you're used to getting a callback right away. I mean, as a bedside nurse, there was not one job I've ever applied to that I haven't gotten a callback and a job offer for. (laughs) It is way different for remote nursing. Like I recommend keeping spreadsheets, keeping track of what's going on. The vast majority of jobs posted online do want experience in that specific role. So it does take a lot of looking through job boards and websites, knowing what companies and looking at their career pages, which is why I also started a job board on the Nurse website where I do that daily. I call through looking for jobs that would potentially hire a bedside nurse and train them in this. There's a lot of things, too, that you do as a bedside nurse that you don't necessarily think about, but translate to those positions. Like we do possibly do a lot of case management type activities at the bedside. In fact, I made a TikTok video a while ago about this, but somebody had, I think nurse Erica had posted this thing where the department just said, now bedside nurses are doing the job of the case manager. And I posted a video and I was like, you get to claim, if you're doing it, you get to claim it. Like you better have that on your resume that you were also the case manager. And this is what you did. These are the resources you were navigating, everything you were coordinating. Were you t- like, what were you having to do? You need to talk about that on your resume. Um, being able to translate those non-bedside skills that you are doing at the bedside is key to getting companies to recognize you.
0: So maybe looking at if you're interested in it, if you could look at what these roles are, like what case managers do, what utilization review nurses do, and then see how your job might fit some of those roles. So like maybe I if I'm looking at a case manager's role and it says that part of their job is to work with insurance companies to try to figure out who's going to pay, if they're going to pay for this particular service, or, you know, we'll pay for this service, but not that, or pay for this company and not this one, and understanding that, then maybe you might think, oh, actually, I have had to do that a few times. And let's, because I worked at this little rural hospital where they just didn't always have a case manager. And so I was ha- literally having to try to figure out a place for this patient to go. So I actually kind of did that. So there's some responsibilities of the case manager that we're doing all the time. And I actually am getting my master's degree in nursing with an emphasis in case management. So I'm learning a lot about care coordination is what it's called. But I'm learning so much about this because for one thing, it's probably a lot harder for me than it would be for a actual case manager to do it because I'm not a case manager. So the mindset's very different, but I finally kind of caught on and now I get it. You know, like your job is more of you're pulled back a little bit more from the patient and looking at it differently trying to pull things together for them but it's really interesting because i also at the same time i'm like man, yeah, i do this stuff myself you know i try to i think about you know is this patient going to be compliant with their medication when they leave the hospital and why wouldn't they be and maybe i need to educate them some more like you need to understand how important it is to keep your stent open for you to take your dual antiplatelet therapy. You know, like you have to take your Berlinta and your aspirin or your stent is going to clot off. So if you don't have access to that for financial reasons or any reason, please let me know and I'll see if I can find someone that can help you with that. That's sort of what, a, you know, that's sort of a case manager role in that you're thinking long-term, you're thinking about the you know them leaving the hospital and having to turn around and come back. Mm -hmm. trying to prevent those things from happening. And that's sort of what care coordination does.
1: Yeah. And one of the biggest things that can be extremely helpful, especially if you're targeting a specific position is to pull up three or more. I like three because it's not overwhelming job postings Mm -hmm. from different companies. So like, let's say it is like a utilization management role, pull up a posting from like Humana Sigma and a local hospital and look at their description. They are those job postings are full of information about what the position actually is and go through it with a highlighter. Find the things that are really important. Find the things that you've done. And if you're seeing a theme across all the job postings, and it's something you have, make sure you're talking about it on your resume.
0: Oh, yeah. Would you say that people need, if they're going to be applying for these jobs, they need to kind of set their resume up for success when it comes to that? Like Rather than focusing in on this the bedside skills, focus in on more of your the case management type skills and the experience with working with medical records the electronic medical records experience working with the different you know different systems and pulling information out of patient notes, progress notes and dealing with collaborative uh, communication dealing with providers and um I guess like focusing your resume more along so that it looks like it would be more in line with what the job is you're trying to get as opposed to like I know how to you know, Put in a foley <laughs>
1: yeah absolutely like your resume is the number one thing like you need the entire package going into this but your resume is the first thing that's going to get you noticed and through that door for an interview and it became very obvious really fast when i started doing this. that was the pain point for nurses so i already had a freelance writing background And I went back and ended up going and joining a national resume writing association and taking formal education to make sure that, like, I was giving good resume advice and working with them to formulate and make a good resume template and help nurses be able to translate these skills and make it their sales document, like make them show off for what they need to so that a recruiter is going to see their resume and be like, I need to call this bedside nurse over this one.
0: So as part of your service that you offer on Nurse Fern, is that helping people get their resume ready for getting one of these jobs?
1: Oh, yeah. I think my most popular thing besides just nurses looking at the job board is the Nurse Fern resume template.
0: You help them with their resume. You also have the job board where you sort of cull through all these different remote nursing jobs and you put the ones on there that you feel like a nurse looking to get into this would have the best opportunity for success.
1: I'm also ruthless. If I know a company doesn't treat the nurses well. It doesn't have good reviews. Like you don't get posted on my job board. I'm not messing around. Like I don't want to steer you in the direction of a crappy remote job. Like you're already looking for remote work for a reason. So I'm not going to point you in a direction that I don't think is a great one.
0: That's good. I mean, that's great to know because there, you could go on all of these different recruiting sites that, that have different types of jobs posted and find ones that say remote, but then you're, like I don't know. If, I th- I feel like a lot of people probably are like me, and they they see jobs and they're like, "Is this legitimate? Is this a legitimate company?" Mm-hmm. I it feels a little, I don't know, sketchy. <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of nice to have a place to go like this, that's done by a nurse who works from home, who understands how to navigate the system, that sort of almost mentoring you to get into this. Is if this is what you want to do?
1: Yeah, I think that was definitely something that i noticed early on and i still consistently see with questions like how do i know if a company is legitimate like how do i know if this is really a job posting and i don't even get it right 100% of the time like that is why i enjoy having such a close relationship with the my social media community the people who follow me because those nurses will message me if something seems off and then i can immediately pull it down from the website and make a post about like this is why it initially looked good, but then this is what I heard about on the back end. So we're not going to look at that job anymore. It is really important to have your spidey senses up when you are applying for remote positions. I love giving a few tips, which include like if you especially if you're looking on Indeed because Indeed seems the public job boards where there is no double checking are definitely the places where scams really pop up. But looking to make sure that a company has a real website I go as far as making sure they have like an address and I'll google them. I'll make sure that they really actually have the address that they have listed on their website. I go to LinkedIn. I make sure that they have a LinkedIn business page and that they have employees that work there and then looking in at their employees and making sure that there's nurses that do that job. I do this consistently if it's a company that I don't recognize and I even encourage nurses to like message the nurses on LinkedIn if they still aren't sure, but they're interested in something. Because it really is something to be careful about if it's not a super recognizable place of employment. Some
0: of them almost sound too good to be true, where you're just like, wait a minute. (laughs) I feel like they're just trying to reel me in, you know, because I don't know. It is hard. You're like, is this really like... The unicorn job I've been looking for, or is this? A mm-hmm. trap? <laughs> yeah. When I started my podcast, there were companies that approached me about sponsorships, and I was the same way. I was like really like skeptical. I'm like, why would you want to pay me to sponsor my podcast? <laughs> and I just, and then uh, eventually I found out. Oh yeah, no, people really do want to pay me to sponsor. But I
1: skepticism really
0: does yeah, protect you. Yeah, it you. doesn't hurt. Well, at some point, though, you know, you've got to kind of let your guard down a little bit. Or you're never gonna get a job. So
1: (laughs) yes, you have to be willing to like make that movement from the step of wanting something and
0: looking to applying. Something about it feels so abstract. It's like there's not a building, like there's the hospital. I can go apply for a job there. You know, it's instead it feels very different.
1: It does. And I know it's such a hard thing, like you when you know you want something different, but you're also very afraid to leave what you currently know. I like to always reassure nurses that just because you put in an application doesn't mean that you have to leave the job you're currently doing. Like there's so many more steps in the middle. So just take it one step at a time, put in the application. And then if you get an interview request, go from there. And then you'll probably have to do another interview. Like there's lots of things that happen in the middle. So just applying doesn't mean that you are leaving what you're currently doing.
0: (laughs) That's really good advice. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners that they need to know? Oh my gosh, that's such a loaded question.
1: There's so many extra things. We were just talking about this with your book. Like there's always something else you want to say. I guess I would just share that if you are interested in starting and looking into remote nursing Just head over to the NurseFern website. There is a getting started guide that's free that you can sign up for, which is a really high level overview of the types of positions, who employs nurses, how to search for them. Poke around the job board, start opening links, even if it doesn't apply to the type of license or the state you live in. Start reading the job descriptions. Like very quickly, you go from possibly not knowing much about what's available to really refining what you think you want to do. And just stay curious and keep looking, but definitely start there on the site. And we are starting to put out blog posts that are more in-depth looks into the different types of positions. So there's a lot there to get lost in to really get started on the path.
0: Awesome. And that's Nurse Fern. It's N-U-R-S-E-F-E-R-N.com. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you.
1: Creepy medical story. (laughs) I know.
0: (laughs) We've come so far. I know I <laughs> we have. That's why we do the good nurse story last. So we can kind of end on a positive note.
1: If somebody asks you, like, do you want the good or the bad news first? Do you always pick bad?
0: Yeah. I want to like <laughs> tell me. I just, I can't, I'm not going to hear anything else until I hear the bad. I just, I got to get past that first. Yeah. And then if it's like, you know, and I'm like, okay, that's really bad. Wow. Is, like
1: make you gotta me feel better, better now.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now. Yeah. At least tell me something good to make me feel better about what I just heard. <laughs>
1: That just popped into my head. I'm like, I think I know this.
0: (laughs) Well, you guys know that you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com. And you can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And you can find us on social media at goodnursebadnurse. We're on all of the the main social media sites. And hope to see you at Nurse Creator Con on September the 24th from 1 to 7. It's going to be fun. If you still would like to go, you can go to nursecreatorcon.com. And buy your tickets and use promo code GNBN-20 to get 20% off. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.